ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens podcast. As always, I am your host, Zach Cronin, and I'm just super thrilled that you would choose to spend some time here with me today. I hope everybody's having a good day, a good week, a good month, whatever. I hope 2021 is treating you very nicely because for the Brooklyn Nets, 2021 has been iffy, I guess. Um, more recently, of course. Um, it's been I think it's been like about a week since the James Harden trade went down, that blockbuster trade that just kind of shocked everybody. I mean, we had known that something was in the works, but just like the scale and the magnitude of that deal, it actually going down was just really it was it was unpredictable and incomprehensible. Almost. It's been, I think, James Harden has played six games or so, six, seven games. And it's been, it's been, yeah, it's been strange just watching him. And it's also just been very strange watching the team, very frustrating, of also very joyous over the last week or so. Um, I think I can, if I remember, we talked about a couple of his first games, namely against, uh, who was it, the Magic, and then whoever the fuck they played after that. But in recent days, they've beaten up on a couple teams. They beat the Milwaukee Bucks last Wednesday. I think it was. That was a nail-biter. Um, and then after that, they lost two games to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Not one, but two. Two embarrassing losses. And it was just watching those games in particular was just... It was so frustrating and just so nauseating. The performances just all around, it was just straight ass. I, I, there's really no other way to describe it. The team just looked like shit. Minimal effort on both ends of the ball. The team just straight up did not play well. The Cavaliers went into those games looking like they had something to prove, and they played just like it. There's also the two games against the Miami Heat that just went down, where um, yesterday, which was Monday, Brooklyn came out with the victory. It was really because James Harden took over in the fourth quarter and they had a similar outcome on Saturday night or Saturday. I think Saturday, Saturday night, I believe where it was Kyrie Irving who took over, dropped 18 points in the fourth quarter. But what's been noticeable over these last couple of weeks is that as far as front court depth is concerned, the nets are just, they're horrible. They have, pretty much nobody of size that can get <coughs> ooh, pardon me consistent minutes <coughs> oh my god and i have no water on me this is spectacular i mean there's deandre jordan who is by default the team starting center because there's nobody else i've seen jeff green getting a lot of minutes he matched up quite well against bam Adebayo throughout those last two games but i don't know how consistent that's going to be and it really shows the team just gets beaten up on the boards almost any time there is a team that has anybody who's taller than 6'10". Jared Allen, 8 when they played the Cavaliers. Andre Drummond, 8 when they played against the Cavaliers. Larry Nance, 8. Everybody was eaten. Actually, I don't know if Larry Nance, 8. I kind of checked out mentally. But I remember Jared Allen and Andre Drummond in particular just really um, forcing the action on the offensive glass. And the wildest thing is that Rebounding has been an issue that the Nets have dealt with for ever since moving to Brooklyn. It feels like it just seems that every year comes around and people are like, hey, Zach, what's going on with the Nets? And I'm like, well, they can't rebound for whatever reason. They are just physically incapable of doing that. Um, it was even it was compounded by Kevin Durant not being there, who on top of being an NBA can an MVP candidate, on top of being the team's best option on offense, he also appears to be the team's best defender, just his size and his length. Even if he isn't like an all-defensive caliber type guy, he still impacts the game whenever he's out there. I mean, he's just another player who can throw his size around and just kind of be disruptive. But like, I'm looking at the team's defensive stats right now. They're, they're allowing 115 points a night with a defensive rating of 111. Good for 25th and 20th, respectively. The defensive rating is really only... I mean, it's not good, right? It's below average, for sure. But a lot of that is because the Nets play so quick, right? And I'm not trying to bail out this team because they have been just straight horrific on defense. But the more possessions, the more points they're, gonna, they're going to allow. 
per game. And I get that. But it's also the more possessions, the more points they're going to score per game. So it's this weird kind of give and take where you want them to get out and utilize the athleticism and the size and just the sheer talent that they have with Kyrie, KD, Joe Harris, um, James Harden as well, where if they're not getting up and down the court, I mean, it's not really a big deal. They could definitely benefit from playing a little slower, but you know, this is working and I think offensively it's working, but if at some point Steve Nash is like, Hey, we got to like cut down the defense is just like the defense can't be in these track meets because the team is a little bit on the older side. As we know, KD, Kyrie, Harden, well, Harden and Kyrie are closer to 30. KD is on the other side of 30. Of course, there's Joe Harris, Jeff Green, isn't no, ain't no spring chicken. Really, I think the youngest rotation guy right now is Bruce Brown, if I remember correctly. Where's he at? Where's Bruce at? I mean, Bruce is 24 years old, getting 16 minutes a night. Like, the rotation is on the older side, especially now that Karras is gone and that Jared Allen is gone. So maybe slowing down will be a little bit more beneficial. But really what I wanted to get to with this um with this center talk is that the Nets need somebody, dude. Like it it's so bad. They need a big just someone to give them like 20 to 22 solid minutes a game. Because DeAndre Jordan is very inconsistent. There was that one night where he was mic'd up. I forget who it was against. I think it might have been against Milwaukee. And he was playing like he was fucking prime Dwight Howard. Just grabbing rebounds, throwing his body around, disrupting shots. I mean, catching alley-oops. And then just more times than not, he just looks kind of out of it. And I don't know if it's an effort thing. I don't think it's an effort thing because DeAndre Jordan has, at least from what I've seen, never been the guy to just kind of like take off plays. I mean, if you're someone whose career is built on being a defensive force. You kind of have to have that effort all the time. I think it might just be really age and endurance at this point. I mean, there's only so much he can do at his age and with all the miles that he's had. I mean, he's good for like 15 to 18 minutes a night, but anything more than that, and that's even like, that might be generous depending on who they're going up against. Like someone like Bam Adebayo, who torched Brooklyn in the two games that they played against Miami, like he's going to work DJ all night. He's going to work pretty much anyone who gets on him. I mean, Jeff Green did a decent job, but like Bam is just, Bam is straight up too skilled to be contained. And that's really a scary sight because just when I was watching these two games against the Heat, it was a much different viewing experience because against Cleveland, the Nets were getting beat on effort plays. They were, they were slower to the ball, not grabbing rebounds, not finishing possessions. And Andre Drummond and Jared Allen, who aren't particularly, they're not like super skilled centers. They're not the type of Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, Bam type center. They're more, they ref, their style reflects more of like Steven Adams and Clint Capella. Andre Drummond is kind of like the elite big in that regard. I mean, the dude is putting up 18 and 15, but because he's just so big and so athletic, but yet he's not really the most efficient scorer. And we're going to touch on that a little bit later. So when you're just getting beat out on effort plays, it always stings a little bit more. I mean, watching Bam the last couple of nights, this guy's hitting fadeaways and, you know, turnaround jump shots on the block. And they were just shots where you watch it and it's like, you know what? That's just when better offense is better. Uh, <laughs> that's when good offense beats good defense. And there was really nothing the Nets could have did or could have done to alter that. Uh, fortunately, I think they got a little bit lucky with just Miami's roster situation. No JB, no Jimmy Butler. He was absent with uh, health and safety protocols. I believe Tyler Hero was out as well. Um, I think there was somebody else. Avery Bradley wasn't present, but like the, the Heat, they put up quite the fight in those two games. And yeah, it really it further highlighted the Nets' need for just like a legitimate backup center. And there have been reports circulating. Um, I use the term report, I guess, loosely because I haven't seen or I don't remember seeing anybody of note tweet about this or report this. So if you have, I apologize. It just hasn't come across my feet. But there is this growing expectation that the Nets will try to make a move for JaVale McGee. As many of you may know, and as a bunch of people on Twitter have already suggested, fuck, I guess it was nothing. As people on Twitter have already suggested, um, JaVale McGee, the backup center for the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, should he have come over during the James Harden trade? And 
well, yes, that would make sense. Um, at least in theory, you have to remember that when you're working with all these teams, right? There are four teams involved in that um, in the James Harden trade. It was the Nets, the Rockets, the Cavaliers, and the Pacers. From an outsider's point of view, if any of those teams didn't want the trade to go through, it wouldn't have gone through. And I think that JaVale McGee coming over to Brooklyn in that trade would have put the Nets even farther back because Cleveland would have had all the leverage in that situation, right? They're trading away Jared Allen. They're trading away so many assets and just so many quality young players to bring in James Harden, which is what you have to do to acquire a player of that caliber. The Cavaliers could have, and they probably did. This was, I'm sure this was a part of the negotiation where Kobe Altman looks at the team and is talking to Sean Marks, and he's like, you know, if you want JaVale, you're going to have to give us X, Y, and Z. It wouldn't just be like a regular, you know, you send a second rounder or two second rounders to Cleveland on a later date. If they know you're trying to get James Harden, they're going to try to squeeze as much out of you as possible. And the Cavs in that situation would have had all the leverage. And I think Sean Marks was, if, if this is how it went down, I would like to believe that he was, you know, he had enough foresight to be like, we can't do anything like this right now. It's just not in our best interest. So he'd be like, you know, they would proceed with the regular deal and then maybe come back at a later date because in that instance, the Nets really couldn't afford to give up anybody else. I don't know who they would have gotten rid of. Maybe, I don't know, they would have fucking traded away Spencer Dinwiddie or something like that. I, I don't know. That's just kind of me being speculative. But Cleveland, that's the instance, again, they have all the leverage. They could have gotten whomever they wanted because they knew that Brooklyn needed a backup center. So the trade goes through. The Nets still need a backup center and Cleveland still has all of the leverage, but it's to a lesser degree because if they don't get JaVale McGee, they can go out and get another quality center. I know they're trying to bring in, um, what the fuck is his name? I think it's Norvell Pelly. I think that's how you pronounce it. If I'm butchering your name, Norvell, I apologize. They actually signed this young man um, a couple weeks ago, I think, but um, he hasn't joined the team for whatever reason. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Um, but anyway, getting back to JaVale McGee. The most I'm willing to give away at this point is two second round picks because the Nets already don't have that much. And it's not that JaVale is a bad player. Right, JaVale McGee has proven to us that he is a capable player in limited minutes. He was a huge part of the Lakers' defense last season, coming off the bench as a substitute for Anthony Davis. I mean, there were there was talks. I forget if it was last year or the year prior. I think it was the year prior. Just taking a quick look, quick look at the numbers, where it was like, you know, is JaVale McGee a Defensive Player of the Year candidate? 31 years old, averaging two blocks and seven and a half boards in 22 minutes, right? He was so monumental for the Lakers. And it was unfortunate that they couldn't really do anything with it. You know, LeBron gets hurt and they kind of just fall apart after um, meeting the Warriors. I don't know if it was on Christmas Day or somewhere around that time, but you guys, you guys know the timeline. It was somewhere around there. So he lands in Cleveland after winning a title with the Lakers. And Per 36 minutes, this dude is averaging about 18 points, 13 boards, and two and a half blocks. That's per 36 minutes. Also, he's averaging about five and a half personal fouls in that time as well. So as you can see, there's a reason why he's not getting all these minutes. He's just, I feel JaVale is trying to do too much. He's actually at about like 16 minutes a game, which is a little bit less than his career average. But like, again, the production in that time, it's quality production. I would love to have JaVale McGee on this roster just as another big body to put in the paint because although he's 33, he might even be 34. Nah, 33. I would just turn 33. For someone who's 33 to be able to produce like that in limited minutes, I mean, he's got a PER of about 18. He's shooting 45% from the field, which is not that great, but like he just appears to be an upgraded version of DeAndre Jordan, right? And with, with DJ starting, it would be fucking amazing for the dude to come off the bench behind him to be even better. Now, of course, it's going to come down to 
what are the minutes going to be like? Uh, I think it's just kind of, it's going to be whoever's hot is hot. Um, I do, if I were Steve Nash, though, I would fully expect JaVale McGee to be on the court in the, you know, like what the NBA considers clutch time. It's like five minutes, the last five minutes of a game that's within five points or something like that. And that's if the other team chooses to run a center. Like we're talking about going up against the Heat again, right? They got Bam out there. JaVale's got to be out there. At a later date, if they meet up against the Sixers and this were to happen, which I fully hope it does, I would love to see JaVale in Brooklyn. Like you're talking about going up against the Sixers team with Joel Embiid. I'm not saying JaVale would be able to stop him because at this rate, no, the only person that's stopping Joel Embiid is Joel Embiid. It would just be nice to, you know, have a competitive player out there who is capable of, you know, kind of just bodying up with this big center and, you know, just kind of being disruptive. I mean, that's really all we can ask for at this point. Outside of that, just someone who can grab rebounds and just plays with intensity because some nights the Nets come out and it looks like that Bruce Brown is the only guy playing with any energy. And you kind of expect that because he's someone who's fighting for, you know, his spot in the rotation. But I just don't really, I just don't like the optics of that. I mean, a couple nights ago, um, it was Saturday against the Heat. Kyrie was really the only guy who was trying to do anything offensively. It was just very odd. Like, and I believe, if I remember correctly, Kevin Durant was out. I think he was out for that game. Uh, I'm just going to double check that real quick. I'm like 90, I'm like 99% sure that he was. No, Kevin Durant was present in that game, actually. Fascinating. Very fascinating. Um, oh, no. My gripe was that even though... You, okay, so what's been weird is that ever since Harden has come over, he's been so reluctant to look for his shot. Like, he's, he is... <laughs> if you were watching him, if you had never watched James Harden before, but, like, someone told you about all of his stats and him winning MVPs and shit... If you were to watch him with the Nets, you would not believe that this guy averaged upwards of 30 points a game for like four years in a row. He just wasn't really aggressive. And it was very odd because there were open shots and Harden was just passing them up, trying to find KD or Kyrie or Joe Harris. And I understand it. And clearly it worked. Harden had 11 assists. You know, Joey, Kyrie, and KD, they all ate. They all played spectacularly, spectacularly well. But what really gets bothersome sometimes is when. Kevin Durant is on the bench and it's Kyrie and Harden on the floor together or it's Harden on the floor by himself and he still doesn't look for his shot. I don't know if it's like him being uncomfortable or him not wanting to step on anybody's toes, but like at some point you got to remember that you're James Harden. You're a bad motherfucker. You're one of the baddest motherfuckers to ever touch a basketball. Like if there's an open shot, you can take it. I don't think Kyrie and KD are going to be upset with you getting buckets, and it showed because they come out the next game. Harden has, I think, he, I don't remember how many points he had exactly. I think he might have had like 10 points in the fourth quarter. And, you know, I was happy to see Harden asserting himself because in a game like this, yeah, he had 10 points in the fourth. In a game like this, neither Kyrie nor KD were playing particularly well. They shot a combined 12 of 38, 12 of 38 had 36 combined points. It was hands down a really shitty performance from both of them. And, uh, you know, just watching the game, the numbers are a little misleading because there were a lot of shots that just simply didn't fall. I mean, Kevin Durant had a couple shots early in the game where they just brimmed out and there's really nothing you can do about it. It's just sometimes, you know, the best players, they just miss open shots. It's kind of, it's just how basketball goes. It's how the game is. But James Harden was like, okay, you know what? I got to put the team on my back. And he kind of just popped off. He had 20 points on 10 field goal attempts. Three of five from three, three of five from the line. Um, But again, scoring is not going to be an issue with this team. Because between Harden and Harris and KD and Kyrie, you're looking at really anywhere from like, 75 to possibly even 100 points every night. The bench is a little inconsistent. Granted, DeAndre Jordan is still good for maybe like 8 to 10 points, depending on how unselfish the team is that day. It just, you know, sometimes 
they might not be looking to pass if the defense is giving them a bunch of shots. That's cool. I mean, Jeff Green, I really liked what I saw from Jeff Green yesterday. Although he didn't shoot particularly well, he was getting to the free throw line at a pretty decent rate. And then really outside of that, there was nothing to uh, really nothing to write home about. Landry Shamit didn't play, which I thought was um, interesting. But yeah, Landry Shamit, um, I I don't know what's going on with him. Same thing with uh, Tyler Johnson, TLC, like those guys. If and when they get minutes, they just they have to do everything in their power to make sure they're in net positive. But again, it all comes down to the defense. And if Brooklyn is unable to hit on JaVale McGee, there is, I don't want to say, I guess the proper word would be um, there is a longing from the Brooklyn Nets or people. I'll, say, I'll, I'll read the quote first and you'll get it. This is from the ringers, Kevin O'Connor who um, I think it was during a podcast or was on a YouTube video or something. He says, quote, people around the league say the Nets are hoping that Andre Drummond gets bought out. That would be, um, I think that would be the fucking ideal scenario. So Drummond, as we know, is virtually a walking double-double. This guy steps on the court and he's just so muscular he's so massive he's so strong he's like 6'11 285 pounds but he's fucking a brick shithouse he's built like a goddamn linebacker like a middle linebacker in a fucking offensive tackles body he is just so massive and you know the rebounds they kind of just gravitate towards him because he's so fucking big and he's super athletic like crazy athleticism from this guy and as a result he's been like one of the league's best rebounders ever since he entered the NBA. He's at about 14 and a half boards right now, uh, which is, again, tops in the league. He's also at scoring about 18 points a night, which a lot of it is just because he's so prolific on the offensive glass. He's also basically undeniable inside the paint. I mean, he's fucking, he's just like, I don't even really know how to explain it. Um. It's just like in the restricted area, he, I don't really know, dude. Like he is, he could be so much more efficient. Like his scoring numbers would be stratospheric if he just shot, you know, better inside the paint. Like right now he's at about 55%, which for a guy like him, that it should be up around like 70, 75, dude. Like, I don't know what's going on. Granted, I haven't watched too much of the Cavaliers, but it might just be that the the Cavs roster is so fucked up that he's kind of just like in this weird spot, but yet he's still averaging damn near 20 points a game. I mean, the free throw shooting is not great, but it's 52%, 58%, which is decent enough. Like you can't intentionally foul this cat anymore. Um, The issue though, is that he does not want to be in Cleveland. I'm just saying that speculatively. Um, I don't know what he really wants to be in Cleveland he is on the final year of a contract um is it 28 million he's about 29 million actually 28.75 um I don't know if there's anyone who would trade for Andre Drummond just because again the contract is so massive and it's not that he doesn't produce it's that he doesn't really produce to the (laughs) to what the money says he should like 28 million is super duper star type money well you're not super duper star like superstar type money like this is what Joel Embiid's gonna get this is what Nikola Jokic is gonna get Giannis LeBron well I mean LeBron is in a different in a different um stratosphere when it comes to that but the hope yeah I could see why the hope would be that Drummond gets bought out and I didn't listen to the entirety of what KOC was saying but you know the Nets they do have Spots available. I think they have, they still got, I think they still have two more after signing uh, Norvell Pelly. And if Drummond were to get bought out and they can get him for like a mid level exception or use the, um, the injury, the disabled player exception to bring him in, um, I think it drastically changes the outlook of this team because Drummond pretty much solves all of their problems while giving them an extra. 14 15 16 points i mean dude comes in plays lockdown defense i don't want to say lockdown i'm not going to say lockdown but he plays very 
quality defense for someone at his position. He's a big body. Um, he's really difficult to throw around. I mean, inside of six feet, this is courtesy of NBA.com, inside of six feet in 14 games that the, um, that the league has data for, Drummond is allowing his opponents to shoot 53.8% inside of six feet. The league average, the league average, 60.8, a differential of minus 7.1. Overall, Drummond is allowing his um, opponents to shoot 44% from the field, a differential of four percentage points. This guy is a quality defender. He is an elite rebounder. The numbers, like, if he's elite at anything, it's rebounding. He's a fantastic old-school type of center, and that's really what Brooklyn needs at that point, like, at this point. Someone who's going to come in and really just not fuck around, deal, like, doesn't deal with any of the bullshit, just goes in there, gets boards, secures secures them, acts as an anchor on the defensive end of the floor. And, like, really, at this point, we're looking for a clear upgrade over DeAndre Jordan because I think DeAndre is a great locker room guy. And, again, he's good in limited minutes, but it sometimes gets to a point where the Nets have to put him on the court, and he is so very clearly a negative but he's got to be out there because there's nobody else that they can go to. DeAndre, um, DeAndre, Andre Drummond or JaVale McGee, or I mean, they were even talking about Kevin Love, which is, that's not going to happen at all. No shot, Kevin Love winds up in Brooklyn. But JaVale and Drummond, they both do what the Nets need from them. And Drummond could do it in a much larger capacity because he can play more minutes. He's younger, better conditioning. Um, he's not as, I don't want to say he's not as um, undisciplined as JaVale because he does still draw a lot of fouls or he gets a lot of fouls called on him. He doesn't really block that many shots. But I mean, you know, for a guy who is going to give you 15 and 15, I think you'll take it. And it's not that like there is no other option for Brooklyn. If Andre Drummond does get into foul trouble, you can call on DeAndre Jordan. I'm sure their minutes are going to be split quite evenly um again maybe even jeff green starts playing some of the five when norvell pelly somehow finds his way onto the roster he's going to get some time as well but like i would love to see either andre Drummond or javel mcgee in brooklyn i think that if that were to happen the team is just they're, they're going to be significantly better like almost right away and doubly so because these are the types of guys who just can kind of you can kind of drop them into the situation and they'll be good like they'll have to learn a little bit about the defensive schemes that Steve Nash wants to run but it's not there's really going to be no issue you know trying to fit them into the offense or anything like that I think it would just be a no-brainer for Sean Marks to try to pursue one of these two guys and again I would fully back him if this were to happen um and that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty much all I've got to say about that. Like, I just, I hope that it comes sometime soon. And I hope that they don't wind up trading away anything, um, really anything more um, than like a second round, a second round pick. Because at least in JaVale's case, he's not going to really need more than that. And I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. Regardless of what happens, though, I would love to see one of these two guys in um in Brooklyn and I think that they would kind of like I don't think they would mind it because you know if the Cavaliers or Andre Drummond goes to the front office and he's like I want to get bought out I want to go to Brooklyn like I think that that is a legitimate thing that might happen like if Andre Drummond sees the Nets as a contender which they see this is this is tricky now because they have the talent to be contenders but I don't. I do not see them as serious contenders, especially because the Lakers are the team to beat right now. Um, the Lakers are just significantly better than pretty much everybody else in the NBA right now. Even if the records don't show it, right? The Lakers are still fourteen and four. They only have a one game lead over the Clippers in the Western Conference. They only got a two game lead over Philadelphia. Like overall, Philadelphia is I think their fourth. Um, they're fourth in wins, but, or they're tied for the third most wins, but I think they're fourth because they have two, two more losses 
than Utah does. Either way, the Lakers, as far as just like roster composition, talent, um, experience, veteran leadership, there's also that LeBron guy who's pretty fucking good, who's on the team. Like the Lakers, they're the team to beat right now. And any team that's going to be called a contender is going to be compared to the Lakers in some regard. The Nets, right now, the Nets roster, as it is, if they were to somehow make it out of the East, they're going to face the Lakers, and I, I would not pick them to win that series because they're not the most well-rounded. They're not the deepest. They got KD, Kyrie, and James Harden, and that's great, but they wouldn't be able to stop the Lakers. No one would be able to guard Anthony Davis. Who's gonna? Le, Katie's only gonna be able to guard LeBron for, you know, a little bit. Like they, there are just too many questions with the Nets. Signing Drummond, or you know, if Dre were to get bought out, that changes everything drastically because now you have a big body in the paint, someone who you know, he could probably go toe to toe with Anthony Davis. I would, I would like to see that matchup a lot. Would he be able to stop Davis entirely? No, because Anthony Davis is an MVP caliber player who can pretty much drop 25 on whoever the fuck he wants. Although he's been kind of mid the last couple of games, I think he's just going through a slump and he'll be out of it. He'll be out of it soon. I mean, he's, he's too talented of a player to stink for an extended period of time. And there was, I, there was even like a quality performance stuffed in there. I think like five of his last seven games, he scored fewer than 20 points or something. But then there was that. There's this one game where he had like 25 or some shit. I don't know off the top of my head, but I remember just checking and being like, okay, he, he's slumping right now. Whatever, shit happens. But yeah, dude, I would love to see one of these cats in Brooklyn. I think that like after that, you're just trying to, you know, improve defensively, whether it's effort. Um, like again, Brooklyn has some dudes who can defend on the perimeter. Kevin Durant can do it. Bruce Brown can do it. Um, James Harden a little bit, um, but yeah, I think securing both JaVale or securing JaVale or Drummond really just elevates this team to like legitimate contender status. And then maybe I think that it would be easier to retain JaVale longer term because if it were not to work out this season, I think Drummond might go to a team that can offer him a little bit more because he's going to be 28 in August. Um, he's still got a few more years left to, you know, you know, get a bigger contract before he's got to kind of just be like, all right, well, I'm fucking washed and I just got to go to a contender just so I can win a title. Like Dre is farther from that than JaVale is, even though JaVale's already won a bunch of titles. I mean, who doesn't want to keep winning titles? And if they can do it at the minimum or something, I would, I'd fully, I'd fully expect that to happen, but we're going to shift to, um, a team who Steve Kerr thinks might actually be contenders, and it's not his Golden State Warriors. It is, in fact, the Utah Jazz. A couple days ago, this is what Steve Kerr said about the Utah Jazz. Quote, Utah's a veteran team. They're trying to win a championship right now, and I think they're capable of doing so. You know, they are where we were three or four years ago. Sorry about that. Now. Uh, Tony Jones, I think it was him, uh, wrote this up for The Athletic. And I didn't read the whole article, and that's not because I don't want to support journalism, but it's because I didn't want my... I didn't want my opinion to be... I don't want to be persuaded one way or the other. I wanted to come into this show today, talk about this with kind of a clear... with just like a clear mind. So I got... To the quote, I said, okay, that's cool. And I kind of just bookmarked it and saved it for later. The Jazz are probably the most surprising team in the league right now. They're at 12 and 4. They're third in the Western Conference. They they look spectacular. Um, they're on what is that, like a nine-game winning streak right now? Um eight. Pardon me. They've beaten the Trailblazers, they beat the Clippers, they beat the Spurs. Um, they did get blasted by the Nets, although they were a little depleted during that game. They beat the Bucks. Always good when you beat the Bucks. And then they've beaten up on a bunch of low-caliber teams. The game against the Bucks actually started this winning streak, and they've since beaten 
Detroit, Cleveland, Atlanta, all games, all winnable games. Um, they beat Denver as well, who was playing who or still is playing like considerably below their talent level, beat the Pelicans twice, and then most recently beat the Warriors. Um, the Jazz are really fucking good right now. They got Quinn Snyder. Quinn Snyder is a damn good coach. And I think what's most impressive about this team is how well-rounded they are and how they've kind of, they've continued to modernize since Quinn Snyder took the job, but now they are peaking, right? So just, just for some context, Utah is an elite defense, right? Third in both defensive rating and points allowed per game. They have the fourth highest net rating in the NBA, and they have the sixth highest offensive rating, which is, I believe, it's probably the best since Quinn Snyder took over. Yeah, they've gotten better offensively. They've gotten better every year, pretty much since 2017-18. I mean, just a lot of that, of course, is Donovan Mitchell. I mean, since drafting Mitchell, the team, the trajectory of the team has just it's just gone nowhere but up. Uh, even watching them last season and in the playoffs last season, like Donovan Mitchell has the potential to be that guy. And when I first heard that quote, the first thing I thought was, okay, is Donovan Mitchell good enough to be the guy on a championship team? There was this little thing going on where Shaq and some of the inside the NBA guys were like, they were pretty much just like stirring the pot, saying that, Donovan Mitchell doesn't have what it takes to be that guy. And on the surface, you know, that might be right. Donovan Mitchell is an undersized guard. I think he might be like barely six foot one or barely six foot two. Um, he's an undersized guard. Doesn't really do anything really well. I mean, statistically, 24 points, 24.3 points, career high, five assists, 4.1 boards. He is shooting 40.6% from three. So that is much improved. Um, like he doesn't really get to the line that often. He's at about four attempts a game. Like on paper, he doesn't do anything like spectacularly. And he plays a decent amount of minutes. He's at about he's at 33 this year, 33.7 for his career. So you look at that and you say, okay, Donovan Mitchell needs help. And I think that's obvious, mainly because there you can't win in the NBA now with just one star player. You need to have two. If LeBron can't do it, nobody can do it. If Steph can't do it, nobody can do it. Like, once we saw that trend of LeBron having to team up with stars, and this was a decade ago. This was before, like, super teams were an actual thing. It's the years of a, a star winning by themselves were gone. And even, you know, back before that, very rarely did one star win titles. I mean, if you look at all the dynasties throughout the course of the NBA, right? The Warriors, Steph, Clay, and Dre. The Heat before them, LeBron, Bosh, and um, Dwayne Wade. And then the Cavaliers, when they won their one title, it was LeBron, Love, and Kyrie. Before that, in the early 2000s, think of teams like the Lakers, who had multiple title runs throughout the decade. Kobe Bryant was, of course, at the center of both of them. But he had Shaq in the early 2000s, and he had Pau Gasol in the late 2000s. Say what you will, say what you will about Pau Gasol. That guy was a legitimate star back in the day. You look at a team like the Spurs, who five titles, two decades of straight playoff appearances. Had Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, then Kawhi Leonard comes around. And again, it's just multiple stars in that spot. And if we want to take it back even further, let's go to the 90s. There was Jordan and Scottie Pippen. Scottie Pippen was one of the best forwards in the game when he played. Undeniable superstar, one of the 50 greatest players of all time. And you pair him up with Michael Jordan, you have an elite, an elite combo. Then the Lakers, Kareem and Magic. The Bad Boy Pistons had Isaiah Thomas and Bill Lambeer. Like, this is nothing new. To, this, is, this is nothing new. Like, throughout the course of the NBA, You've always needed multiple stars to win championships. It just so happened that back in the day, you kind of lucked into that. 
I guess, as opposed to guys, you know, actively taking control of their destiny. Like that was really what LeBron did was he ushered in the era of player empowerment. Like you could pretty much decide whether you wanted a chance to win a title or not. And some people might not like it. Some people may be indifferent towards it. I'm really, I really don't care. I just want to watch good basketball and the jazz. My one issue with them, and there aren't many, as I already mentioned, they have an elite defense, an explosive offense. They play at a decent pace. They play to their own pace, which I think is better than playing fast or slow. They play at a pace at which they're comfortable to play in. They're making a lot of threes. They're taking a lot of threes, and they're hitting their threes at a high percentage. They're first in made threes per game and second in... um three-point field goal percentage at 16.8 and 40.3 respectively the roster though this is this is my issue is that there is no second guy to donovan mitchell or if you wanted to bring in if they managed to bring in someone like bradley beal right there is nobody let's say it like this there is nobody who is equally as talented as donovan mitchell or someone who is even more talented than donovan mitchell if they bring in somebody like that, this team is a legitimate contender. Because right now, Donovan Mitchell is reliable for leading and facilitating the offense. Although they have six players averaging 10 points a night, a lot of those guys are dependent on Donovan Mitchell to get them open looks, right? So D. Mitch is leading the team at 24 points. After him is Jordan Clarkson. And Jordan Clarkson is kind of not involved in my previous statement because he's the leading six man of the year candidate right now at about 17 and a half points a game. I mean, guy just comes in and is a spark plug. He gives them quality minutes, like 17 points in 24 minutes. They are feeding this guy shot attempts. They are force feeding Jordan Clarkson shot attempts. I mean, his confidence right now has got to be through the roof. I mean, he's on a per 36 minute basis. He's averaging less than one point. He's averaging one point less than Donovan Mitchell on comparable shooting percentages. But Jordan Clarkson is still not he you're not going to win a championship with Jordan Clarkson as your second or even third option. It's just it's just not going to happen. If they wanted to flip him for somebody like I'm talking like Zach Levine, Bradley Beal, if they were trying to get a play for one of those guys, I think Jordan Clarkson would be out there. He'd he'd be gone like immediately. It'd be the one of the only ways to make it work. Uh, Guys like. Boyan Bogdanovich, uh, Joe Ingles, catch and shoot guys. They're not creating their own offense. And if they are, it's very sparse, right? You're not putting the ball in Joe Ingles' hand and like, hey, create something, go one-on-one because he's, that's not in his skill set. Same thing with Bogdanovich. Having watched him with the Nets a couple of years ago and just seeing the progression of his career, he's still mainly a catch and shoot guy. He can slash every so often, but it's not something that's going to be sustainable um Mike Conley um he can he works like symbiotically with Donovan Mitchell they kind of take turns facilitating the offense and it's it's working for them he's probably the only other guy on the team who doesn't need Mitchell to create his own offense but being a little bit older it helps just having Mitchell be hot so that way you can have a little bit more room to work and then of course and then of course there's Rudy Gobert who is pretty much entirely reliant on having on on a legitimate point guard to feed him the ball. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just how Gobert's game is. He's super old school, but he's no different than Steven Adams or Clint Capella where they need a good point guard to pretty much create their offense for them. And I think Rudy Gobert is huge if this team wants to contend for a title, not because of his offense, but because he is arguably, if he is, probably the best defensive center in the NBA. I'd go as so far as to say that if he's not, he's most certainly in the conversation. And that that's huge for a team that's making a title run. And if they're going to go into the playoffs against a team like Los Angeles or the Lakers, I should say, he's going to have to be out there. Although you do run into certain instances where if a team goes small, Gobert is kind of unusable because He's not the most, like, he's not a fluid center. He's not positionally fluid. He can't switch onto multiple guys. He's pretty much, 
he pretty much has to has to guard other centers and other power forwards that are built kind of like him. So that's really my only gripe. But if the Jazz offense can, you know, get hot and put up a bunch of points with Gobert on the bench, I don't see that really being an issue for anybody. It's just my gripe is, again, they're going to need another star to compliment Donovan Mitchell. I fully, I don't want to say I fully believe that Donovan Mitchell can be the, the guy on a championship team. He could definitely be one of the guys if he's like like 1A, 1B. It just depends on who the other guy is because, you know, again, I kind of fell into the, <clears throat> the thought process to where like he's not really striking in any regard. Like he doesn't, he doesn't have a lot of like he doesn't have superstar potential to me but he also does because he's very talented and it doesn't really matter that he's undersized so much because he's super athletic and his game is becoming much more well-rounded and when we watching him last postseason I think it was last postseason um just this dude averaged 36 points across seven games like it's that's unfathomable production almost 36 points on 53 percent shooting like of course is that sustainable for an entire postseason I don't think so but is it crazy to think that you know when the stakes are at their highest and he's getting more minutes and more shots is it possible that he averages 28 29 30 points I don't I don't see why not. I mean, if you just look at Mitchell's three year playoff progression, each year he's gotten twenty two twenty two shot attempts per game across twenty three games, scoring twenty four points per game in his first playoff trip, down to twenty one and then up to thirty six. Like there is clearly some improvement happening. And maybe just because we're not like we don't see it during the regular season, so we just don't know, but you know, if the Jazz have the kind of player who can, I don't want to say coast during the regular season, but just like, you know, kind of put it on cruise control and then turn up in the in the playoffs, like it really, that's all that matters. Like, as long as your guy, as long as your number one plays like a superstar in the postseason, the regular season really doesn't matter, especially because the Jazz are a great regular season team who have a roster that can contend with pretty much any team in the NBA. It's just that the playoffs are different because once that happens and you start playing a series against somebody, the team learns how to play some of your more important players off the court, unless you're going up against the Bucks, where Mike Budenholzer just fails to make adjustments. But that's kind of what happened the last two years for the Jazz. They play against, you know, Houston or whomever, a team that can play small and they get Rudy Gobert off the court. And it's pretty much just Donovan Mitchell going one on five. Like they're they're just gonna need another guy to kind of alleviate that load. And I'm curious to see if they if they go about it because like I don't know what their championship window looks like. They're definitely on the come up. They're most certainly on the come up. And they've got Donovan Mitchell secured through twenty He's got a player option for 2025-2026. So, dude, they're knocking on the door of being a contender for the first time in, like, 20 years. I mean, Donovan Mitchell at 23, he's playing like this, 23-24, however old, however old he is. He's 24. Like, he's still got two more years until he's in his prime, I'd say. At least another year or so. And, I mean... Yeah, if he just like goes out and fucking plays crazy in the postseason and they bring in someone else, like maybe I don't I don't know who Utah would bring in exactly. So, you know, maybe someone in like the Zach Levine, Bradley Beal type archetype because Donovan Mitchell can play point guard a little bit. I mean, he can pass. You know, the numbers aren't really that high because he's played with guys like Ricky Rubio and Mike Conley, which has allowed him to focus more on scoring. But I think that you know, Mitchell is a decent enough passer to where somebody like Beal or Zach Levine, they would be able to thrive. And I, th I think I just really want to see Bradley Beal win a championship. That might be why I'm throwing him in there. But I think the Jazz are a contender or they have the potential to be a contender. It just all comes down to how 
the front office handles all of this. And that might be one of the most interesting developments over the next few years. And I want to shift away from basketball for a second because Super Bowl 50, whatever the fuck, is upon us. Uh, February 6th? Not this coming Sunday, the following Sunday. And we have the greatest quarterback of all time going up against the future greatest quarterback of all time. Patrick Mahomes, they came out. The Chiefs, he, he and the Chiefs went out, handled their business against the Buffalo Bills, who, much like New York State, during the beginning of the pandemic, were unable to contain anything. That's always fun. Um, but, you know, I'm not a Bills fan. I was only a Bills fan because it's cool to root for New York sports teams when they're doing something, when they're in the playoffs. I was rooting for the Bills, but I knew that deep down in my heart that there was no way, <laughs> there was no way they were beating the Chiefs that day. Even though Patrick Mahomes was hurt, he was dealing with that turf toe after going through the concussion protocol and all that. I just knew that it was, it was, no, nah, it, it was done. Like Patrick Mahomes is just too good. Like this guy hasn't fucking, I saw the stat where I think it was like he hasn't trailed by more than a possession in a game since like. 2016, which is when he was still in college. I don't know the specifics of that stat, but it was something in that vein. Uh, and yeah, just as I expected, Mahomes came out, was slinging the rock all around the football field. Tyreek Hill was eaten. Travis Kelsey was eaten. Um, and for him to go up against Tom Brady, who many people are starting to talk about being the greatest athlete of all time. He's now on his way to his 10th Super Bowl. I was very, very shocked that the Buccaneers were able to drop the Packers. I was at a diner celebrating my friend's birthday and I'm just watching the game and the Packers just sucked, bro. They sucked. Like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what happened. And they made a valiant comeback too, which was the crazy part. Like I, they were down by like two or three possessions at some, or two scores at some point. And I'm like, this game's done. This game, this game's over. But then again, I was thinking, you know, if anyone were going to pull off a miracle, It'd be Aaron Rodgers, like, you know, another guy who doesn't have the accolades to be the GOAT, but is probably the most talented quarterback to ever play the position. Like, even as great as Patrick Mahomes is right now, and Patrick Mahomes has the potential to kind of, you know, surpass everybody as both the most decorated and the most talented. Like, Aaron Rodgers threw 48 touchdowns at, like, what is he, 38 years old? He's 65 in athlete years. He's a fucking geriatric quarterback, and he just, he was carving up defenses like he was 25. It was it was just absurd. But like, you know, maybe I I just underestimated the Bucks. Like, you know, Mike Evans, Leonard Fournette, Tom Brady, Chris Godwin, the defense has been, you know, good enough. Like, I think maybe I've just didn't give the Bucks enough respect, but I don't want to give my pick just yet on the Super Bowl, although I'm leaning towards the Chiefs just because, again, like Patrick Mahomes is just so fantastic and so marvelous that you kind of feel silly betting against him. And I just want to, you know, maybe sit back and analyze the matchup a little bit more. But there was this there was a lot of talk about Tom Brady being the greatest athlete of all time, having been to 10 Super Bowls, um, winning six. And I think coining the greatest athlete of all time is an impossible task just because it's fucking snowing right now, bro. What? Anyway, back to reality. It's like when you're sitting in school and <laughs> some fucking one of the kids would just be like, oh, it's snowing. Meanwhile, it's like May and the entire class would look and it would be sunny and y'all would just like stare and then get back to it. That was me right now but trying to coin the greatest athlete of all time is an impossible task just because first of all team sports and individual sports are two entirely different they're two entirely different things so you'd never be able to compare tom brady to somebody like serena williams right because and this is not i'm not shitting on individual sports it's just how it is serena williams has she's got like what 23 grand slam titles the most decorated tennis player of all time. If she takes, I don't even know what would be the court, the clay, 
the fucking whatever. If she is holding a tennis racket against someone that she is better than, she is most likely going to come out with the victory because there are no other variables. There's nobody else that you have to lean on. And same thing goes with a guy like Roger Federer or Tiger, Tiger Woods or in the boxing world, if you talk about someone like Floyd Mayweather or uh, Vladimir Klitschko, Mike Tyson, guys in the UFC, someone maybe like Khabib or John Jones, people like that where they don't have to worry about anybody else. And as long as you're better than your opponent, you're probably going to win. Um, football, I would argue, and many people argue this, is the most team-centric team sport there is. Because in basketball, if you have somebody like LeBron James, LeBron James can bring you to a title, quote-unquote, by himself. I mean, by, yes, by himself. But of course, like the team has to help. Football, like you really have to have a strong team to win the title because if the offensive line sucks, the quarterback can't get, isn't protected properly. The running back doesn't have any holes to blast through. Your offense isn't going to go anywhere. On the flip side, if you have an elite quarterback and kind of average receivers who can't catch the ball, your offense is just, it's going to, it's going to falter defensively. Same thing. If your secondary is ass and they can't defend and the linemen aren't putting pressure on the quarterback and just, you know, making just, just overall being disruptive, you're not going to win. With all of that said about the differences between individual sports and team sports, I'm not going to compare Tom Brady to somebody like Serena Williams or Floyd Mayweather because it's entirely different. And that doesn't mean that individual sports are any, um, any easier or any or more difficult. It's just that the reliance is merely on yourself. Like if you lose, it's your fault. But if you win, you get all the glory. In that regard, you could easily make the argument that Tom Brady is the greatest team sport athlete of all time. Right up there with somebody like Kareem and um, Michael Jordan. Um, I don't really know like baseball people, but I guess you could throw... Uh, I, don't, see, I, don't, I don't even really know. So I can't even really make that argument. Someone like Wayne Gretzky, maybe, but I don't know. Well, actually, you know what? We have the power of their internet. I'm going to go to Wayne Gretzky's hockey reference page. And so, okay, Wayne Gretzky, four Stanley Cups. I don't know if that's the most ever or not, but Wayne Gretzky, for someone who doesn't know hockey like I do, I know that he is the greatest hockey player of all time by a wide margin. So four Stanley Cups seems pretty good. And again, I can't really talk about like the competitiveness of hockey just because I don't know, but we'll throw him in there. And I think when you're talking about these kinds of, you know, this level of greatness, people are going to use the fact that Tom Brady has lost a couple Super Bowls against him. We see that all the time when you're talking about the, um, the GOAT debate between, you know, LeBron and Jordan. Jordan is considered the GOAT because he's won six finals. He went six of six in the finals. Six finals MVPs. Immaculate stats. Great accolades. LeBron can match the accolades, can match the stats, but hasn't had the success in the finals. And it's different because these kinds of debates require context, right? LeBron has been on the weaker team more times than not in his trips to the finals. Jordan and the Bulls, Jordan and the Bulls were always the best team. I don't want to say always. There may have been like a finals or two where they weren't the favorites, but even then, it was close because Le uh, Jordan was pretty clearly the best player in the league at that point, and the Bulls had a fantastic team every year, just from top to bottom, immaculately constructed. So that obviously is going to make them be the favorites more times than not. Not saying that LeBron... I don't even know what I'm trying to say here, but Tom Brady to be the greatest athlete of all time. I think there's definitely a debate for it, but like it's such, it's a debate that you kind of can't even have because all the sports are just like so different. I mean, he's undeniably the greatest NFL player to ever, to ever live like that. That really isn't a debate, but to compare him to guys in 
you know, basketball or hockey or baseball or to tennis, fighting, golf. Like, I think it's just, I think it's silly. And we're coming up on an hour here. So with that, I'm going to close this one out. Thank you all so very much for listening. If this is your first time, welcome. If you're returning, welcome back. Any way you could support the show is much appreciated, whether it's following us on social media, um, listening, obviously leaving a like, stars, however you can support the show. I, I really do appreciate it. And I want to thank you guys again. And with that, I'll catch y'all in the next one.